Hello there, welcome to Strange Old World, the podcast where we delve into the weirder corners of world-famous cities. I'm Joe, and every fortnight I chat with a local travel expert in a different old world city and get them to pick their favourite bizarre local sites, festivals, food and more. This week we're talking about Lisbon in Portugal, said by ancient historians to have been founded by Odysseus. Modern historians mostly say it was founded as a Phoenician trading port in around 1200 BCE. Either way, it's one of Western Europe's oldest cities. But why is it strange? That's where today's guest comes in, Anne Abel. Anne is an American-born, Lisbon-based travel journalist who writes about the city for all kinds of travel publications, most notably for Forbes, where she's a senior contributor. You'll find a link to her Forbes site in the podcast description. Just to say, the audio quality isn't the best on this one. We had quite a few technical issues, particularly early doors, which is why the conversation is not very free-flowing at the start. But it picks up as it goes along, I promise. With that said, let's get into it. In this episode, you will hear about all manner of odd Lisbon attractions, from phony medieval castles to sardine street parties. A quick reminder that all of Anne's recommendations can be found on our website, strangeoldworld.com. And at the end of the pod, I'll share my favourite strange thing to see in Lisbon. Intro over, let's begin. So welcome to the podcast, Anne Abel. You're an award-winning American travel writer based in Lisbon, Portugal. You've written about destinations all over the world for everyone from Condé Nast Traveller to Afar to National Geographic, and you're a senior contributor to Forbes Travel. But before we get into all that, I'd like to dive into your background a little bit. So where are you originally from? Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, which people perhaps might know from Breaking Bad, but I had most of my career in New York. I lived in New York for 20 years, and um, then I got fed up with New York, and I ended up in Lisbon. I visited on assignment for Forbes about seven years ago, and I fell in love with the city because you just mentioned that you've been here. There's a lot to love about it. It's perfect weather. It's a beautiful city. You know, the light is a cliche, but it's really beautiful. The food, the wine, they're beautiful beaches. The people are nice. Being based in Europe makes professional sense. And how did you end up working as a travel writer? So you were you're obviously already working for Forbes before you came to Lisbon. How did that happen? I was on staff at Forbes from 2008 to 2012. Before that, I was at a small travel magazine called Luxury Spa Finder. Uh, before that, I was at GQ. And before that, I was at Rolling Stone. Um, wow. I've worked in some great places, but travel has really been my calling and uh, my favorite segment of journalism to be working in. What was your first travel writing assignment? I got sent to a spa in eastern uh, Quebec. Wow. So this was for the spa magazine, I assume? I actually started out just as their proofreader and I began hitting up the editor saying, I'm also a writer. I'm also a writer. Here's some things I've written. And he decided to give me a chance. Uh, He wanted to send a young woman in her 20s who had never been to a destination spa before to a destination spa. And I said, well, here I am. So he sent me and he liked that article. And then he sent me to Vancouver Island and he liked that article. And after a few more assignments, I got a full-time job there. Obviously, you're a very well-traveled person. I'm sure there are places all over the world that you've pictured yourself living in at some point. Um, So how did you land on Lisbon? What is it you love about the city? It's a very livable city. It's a big city, but it's not overwhelming. I find that it's very human in scale. There's a growing international community, which I think makes it diverse and interesting. At the time I moved here, the 
cost of living was very reasonable. Since then, it's gone through the roof. It's not particularly reasonable at all. But seven years ago, it was a different world. Um, and you know, I can I can keep going. And the honest answer is also that I met someone, and he made it easy. The relationship didn't work out, but I am I'm still very much in love with Portugal. Okay, so before we go into the episode, I'd like to ask a little bit about your Forbes blog. So this is at forbes.com slash sites slash anable. There's obviously a strong focus on Portugal, but you've also written about New Zealand, Italy, Malaysia. I've been to 104 countries and, and written about the large majority of those. So you're part of the 100 Club. I'm not quite there yet. I, I'm not an official member, <laughs> but um, I am there. <laughs> Amazing. So most of your articles fall under the category of luxury travel. But beyond this, is there kind of an overarching theme to the topics you cover or particular reason you choose certain assignments? I like independent projects. I think my favorite thing is a small hotel that is owned by some eccentric billionaire who does not need the hotel to make money. Mm -hmm. I've been to a number of places that uh, where they describe themselves as hoteliers as a hobby. And those are always the most interesting places because while I write about travel and hotels and restaurants, I'm ultimately writing about the people behind them. For instance, I just wrote an article about a chef in New Zealand that I'm proud of because he was such an amazing personality and his whole approach to food and the ethical treatment of animals and his whole story was so interesting. I would never write a story about sustainability as the angle, but I do not want to write about something that's completely unsustainable. That makes sense. So what are some of your favorite articles beyond the billionaire hotels? Are there any particular articles you'd like to um, share with the listeners? I'm actually more proud of some of the food stories that I've written lately. As I, I mentioned, the one about New Zealand, I wrote one last summer about the, the food scene in Berlin, especially the regenerative farmers and this community of growers and producers and chefs that work together and are really almost political in their approach to food. And they, they see food as a form of culture, not just agriculture. And I was really happy to tell their story. So I, I think those are actually the stories that I'm most proud of. So now we move on to the nub of the matter. I've asked you to come up with suggestions for some of the stranger experiences to be had in Lisbon. Can you please start me off with a strange thing to see in Lisbon? So a strange detail in the Tower of Belém is that there's a rhinoceros, uh, which is not something you would expect to see in a 16th century piece of construction in Portugal. All of the turrets are decorated with different carvings of animals, and one of them is this rhinoceros. Um, and the story behind it is that a rhinoceros was actually sent to Portugal as a diplomatic gift from India. And they did horrible things with this rhino and tried to make it fight elephants and, and did kind of stupid things. And eventually they decided to offer it as a gift to the Pope and did not survive the voyage to Rome. But an artist immortalized this rhinoceros and his illustrations ended up being duplicated around Europe, and one of them is inside the Tower of Belém. 
So can you give me a strange thing to do in Lisbon? A new place, a restaurant, immersive theatre experience called Palacio de Grillo that opened about a year ago in one of the trendiest kind of warehouse districts in Lisbon. And there was this disused 18th century palace that was gorgeous, but it was in ruins. And a French theatre and circus producer came in and bought it, decorated it. It's full of surrealism. There are different performers every night who are doing things like one night somebody rode through on a horse. There's a woman arranging items on the floor and then weaving and doing different things, but the performers change what they do. They are different performers. They all live there and they have this sort of community and then they do change their performances from time to time and they change the artists in residence from time to time. So it's just this sort of strange, immersive experience and the food happens to be pretty good as well. So works all around. Can you please recommend a strange festival or event or tradition? Okay, my Portuguese friends will not be happy with me for saying this because they don't think it's strange. <laughs> However, for the month of June, everybody sets up tables and, and grills on the street and they grill sardines and stewed peppers and beef sandwiches and very cheap, very bad red wine. And they listen to this sort of folksy music really loud until very late. And it's to celebrate uh, Santo Antonio, which interestingly enough is not actually the patron saint of Lisbon, but became this important saint. And he's one of three important saints that are celebrated in different parts of Portugal throughout the month of June. So basically the whole month of June becomes dedicated to sardine parties on the street. And people from different neighborhoods dress up and have a dance competition. And my, my neighborhood historically has been a winner. And then when they win, everybody gets extremely excited. And then there is more folk music on the street until four in the morning and dancing and sardines. What kind of dance is it in the competition? Is there a particular style? It, it's traditional dances, I would say. So it's not break dance versus body popping? No. <laughs> Nobody is twerking. <laughs> it's very traditional in style. <laughs> Amazing. A sardines is a particularly Lisbon thing or is it a Portuguese thing generally? It's a Portuguese thing in general. Most recently I was in Porto and I remember they sold these very uh, beautiful decorative cans of sardines, but I didn't know the if it was... The cans are beautiful. The tradition of the, the sardines as part of the celebration of the Saints' Days in June actually began when sardines came into season in June, so you could suddenly get fresh ones. Now, because of various things, you can't really fish the fresh ones until July or August. So the tradition has continued, but they're not, they're using frozen ones in many cases. So when does this happen? In Lisbon, the, the, the Saint's Day of Santo Antonio is the 13th of June. So the party is the night before on the 12th of June, but really all month it goes on. My neighbors on my street specifically love it. Um, I don't get a lot of sleep in June, <laughs> but it, it, it's a fun party. Great. Is there a particular place you would recommend going to see it as a tourist? The center of the celebration in Lisbon is Alfama. On the 12th, it gets so crowded that you really cannot move. So if you want to go there, you have to go early and just camp out at your table for the evening because otherwise it's wall-to-wall -wall people and you can't move. So that's not my preference. My neighborhood is Madragoa, and which is part of Santos. 
and there are very good celebrations there. It's just a little bit more relaxed. I tell people that it's like midway between Kaishundre and the Timeout Market and Bilem because people seem to know those two landmarks. The main street is Rua d'Esperanza, which means the Street of Hope, or Rua Santo Chevelio, which refers to the name of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I've also been in Grassa and Peña de Franza, and Bica, the, the big staircase in Bica, has a, a great celebration. So can you recommend a strange thing to eat or drink in Lisbon? Portuguese will eat almost anything that comes out of the ocean. And one particular delicacy that is, for me, an acquired taste is goose barnacles. Um, goose? Goose neck barnacles. Okay. They are really, really ugly. They are chewy. You have to twist them out of their shell. And you, it's one of those foods that you just wonder, who is the first person who ate this and why? <laughs> who saw this and thought, yeah, that looks tasty. They're very difficult to harvest. They're very expensive, and people go mad for them. They also love snails. I do like snails. I haven't had the barnacles. The, the barnacles are very popular. They're definitely an acquired taste. And do you serve the goose barnacles in a particular way? Do you have it with lemon or an aioli or something? They're pretty much just steamed and served. A lot of the other seafood, the clams, the shrimp, um, is always prepared with a ton of garlic, coriander, olive oil, lemon juice, maybe white wine and sauce. It's always that sauce. It's delicious. But the barnacles don't have that sauce. They're, they're much served much more simply. And where do you get them? Are they like uh, from markets or uh, restaurants? Restaurants. I, I don't know of anyone who prepares them at home. Any of the, well, they're called cervejarias, which means beer hall, but they're seafood places. So the most famous one, of course, is Ramiro. And Ramiro is constantly packed, deservedly so. It's a very good restaurant, but there's usually a queue to get in. There's a place like three doors down called Cervejaria Lis, and it is also really good. Uh, there's one called uh, Nunes Real that's very good. There's one called Palacio. Basically any of the really typical traditional seafood halls, no frills places, paper tablecloths kind of places. Okay, but you're not the biggest fan by the sound of it. It's I'm acquiring the taste. <laughs> My first experience was a little bit too chewy. I will say there's a, a chef at a very high-end restaurant who does a version of tiny ones on toast that are delicious. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the restaurant? It's actually called Bar, which sounds weird, but it's the Barrio Alto Hotel restaurant. Um, and the current chef, it was the restaurant was uh, actually set up by Nuno Mendes, who is famous for his restaurants in London. Um, but the, the real chef now, who is the, has been the real chef all along and is fully credited for it now, is Bruno Roca. And I really like what he does with barnacles on toast. Oh, amazing. That's a great recommendation. It's nice to have, you know, the option of going to the Cerveceria and also to, to the high-end hotel. Oh, there's another place um, called Boy Cavallo in Alfama that's sort of a little hipster hole in the wall that does a, a rice with the barnacles that I like also. So let's move on to a strange myth or slice of history in Lisbon. Well, one thing that I find interesting that actually a lot of visitors to Lisbon don't know is that the famous uh, St. George's Castle is actually fake. 
Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it wasn't even really big enough to have been a proper castle for a lot of people to live in. But it was in ruins until the mid 20th century. It was just like half a wall. Like it was, there was very, very little left of it. And what happened is that during the dictatorship in the mid 20th century, the dictator Salazar wanted to show the world how great Portugal was. Because it had been great in the 16th century during the time of the discoveries. It was more important than Venice. It was once the most powerful city than the richest city in Europe. Obviously, things have changed dramatically since then. But uh, Salazar was trying to restore some of that glory. And uh, one of the things that he did was rebuild the castle in a style that looks historic. I mean, it, it looks good. It's a nice looking castle, but it's not authentic. Next up, I'll ask you for your stranger danger. Are there any customs of visitors to Lisbon that locals find strange or surprising or irritating? I I, th- I think there's obviously a lot of things that tourists do everywhere that irritate the locals. Um, you know, stack dues and things like that. But I think one one giveaway for a tourist is that they will order a large beer. They will order the equivalent of a pint of beer because the Portuguese mm-hmm. never, ever do that. The Portuguese always drink little tiny beers. In Spain, it's the caña, right? The small draft beer. Is it 0.2 litres? Well, the, the small bottles are 0.33, mm-hmm. um, but in glasses, it's, it's probably a similar serving. And there, there's a really good reason for it, which is that you just keep getting fresh ones and it stays cold. But it's confusing to foreigners and then the foreigners come here and they're like, no, I need a big beer. And I think the Portuguese bartenders roll their eyes a little bit. (laughs) I suppose if you've got attentive table service, it makes sense to have small beers more regularly. I mean, in the UK, you have to go to the bar to order. So ideally, you want to limit your trips. The places to experience this is the the seafood and beer halls, uh, where the servers are just constantly bringing you fresh beers. You have to actually have to tell them to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there a price difference? If you order like a, a large beer, is it just twice the size and twice the price? Or No, it's probably a little bit more cost effective to order one large one. But the Portuguese still don't do it. They, they like their small ones and they like them fresh and cold. Can you recommend a strange day trip from Lisbon? I think Sintra is very famous, but I think Sintra is strange um, because Sintra has such strange palaces. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is Pena Palace, which is the one that's built on, on a hill and is in every postcard of Portugal. But it's red and pink and yellow and has blue tiles and it's a mix of architectural styles. And the owner was, the, the man who built it was just a little bit loopy and it is strange. And there's another uh, palace there that's less well-known called Reguleira. And it's interesting. It also has a very distinctive architectural sensibility. But it has this sort of well. No, well's not right, the right word for it. It has this large hole in the ground. And you go down this circular staircase around it, into it. And then the light at the bottom is beautiful. And there's a sort of garden down there. But it's... Um, it's just, well, it's, frankly, it's strange. All right. So what what was the purpose of that big hole? Well, it reflected this the cultural, philosophical, and scientific interests of the owner, 
I think he was interested in like light and shadow and when the light would hit correctly and sh- and showing off the the talent of the architect that he could build something like this. Um, this was you know the late 19th century, so we did not have the technology that we have now. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I've, I've been to Sintra. My main memory is we rented scooters and we went out to the coast around. And there was a point which is the westernmost... Westernmost point in Europe, and it's always extremely windy. It was very windy. But I also remember that it was like one of the most qualified attractions I've ever been to, because it's not the westernmost point of Europe. Iceland is much further west. It's not even the westernmost point in the EU, because I think Ireland just about edges it. Yeah, it's not even the westernmost point in Portugal. Right, exactly. You've got Madeira and the Azores. I think in the end it built itself as something like the westernmost point of the... Eurasian landmass, you know, yes. excluding any islands, something ridiculous like that. <laughs> Still, there's a nice lighthouse, so, you know, it's worth a visit. That's the strange stuff done. I'll just ask for a few conventional recommendations. So what are the things that you think visitors to Lisbon shouldn't miss? If you like churches, we have a lot of those. (laughs) If you like palaces, we also have a lot of those. Um, We have some very, very good museums, ranging from a museum that's just dedicated to Portuguese tiles, to one of the carriages of former nobility, to um, the discoveries, uh, to a big oceanarium. Um, I think walk as much as your feet and your legs will allow. It's a lot of hills, but there's a lot of beautiful corners. Of course, walking through the historic neighborhoods like Alfama, um, like my neighborhood, Madrigoa, is just a very charming experience. There's also a very good tram system, right, in Lisbon? There is a good tram system. It's very picturesque. I personally do not recommend riding the famous 28. Mm-hmm. The queue to get on is more than an hour. Wow. You're just standing up and you can't see anything. There are a lot of pickpockets and the tram has actually become unusable for people who live here and would have liked to use it to get around. Um, It actually runs pretty much directly from my first apartment here to a friend's home. And I made the mistake of taking it once. This was years ago before Lisbon got as popular as it is now. And it took an hour and a half. And I could have walked there in 45 minutes. Wow. Okay. Because every stop, people are getting on. They don't know how to pay. It, so I am not a fan of, of the 28. You can walk along the tracks of the 28, see all the same sites. I prefer doing that. That's what I like to recommend. Yeah, that's a good tip. So you're not packed in like sardines, ironically. There are also um, dedicated tourist trams that follow the same route. They're obviously more expensive, but I actually encourage people to take those if they really want to ride a tram because it will be less crowded. They will have a better view and it's less contribution to the problem of the tram having become unusable to the residents of Lisbon. Why should people visit Lisbon now? Are there any events currently happening or coming up soon? There's a great contemporary art museum, which has a fantastic exhibition right now, actually until March, uh, by probably Portugal's best-known contemporary artist, uh, Joana Vasconcelos, uh, who does very large-scale, very poppy works, a lot internationally, but this is a very big 
it's not even a retrospective because it's, it's site specific. She designed it for, for the venue. And um, the museum is called Mott, which I believe is Museum of Art, Architecture and Technology. I haven't had the opportunity to go yet. I'm really looking forward to go um, because it just opened. Okay. Are there any other events that are coming up soon that you would recommend or currently happening? It's difficult to say. Summer is really festival season. Not only the, the sardine festivals, but a lot of large music festivals. There's concerts year-round. There's theater. There's always a lot of cultural things going on throughout the year, but... The really famous can't miss stuff does tend to be in the warmer months. Mm-hmm. So is that when you would recommend people visit generally be summer? I would no. I would recommend spring and autumn. I would uh, recommend April, May, September, October, which is actually the time I would recommend almost anywhere in the world. Summer does get a bit hot, and summer gets very crowded. Walking around all day when it's thirty-five is not as nice as when it's twenty-seven. Finally, to end on something strange, can you tell me the strangest sight you've seen elsewhere in the world? A few years ago, I did a trip with Atlas Obscura to Bulgaria to look mm-hmm. at communist and socialist monuments, which is just a strange thing to sign up for. And the guide has a PhD. He's English. He has a PhD in Bulgarian monuments. So he and his Bulgarian tour leader, I think, made the trip. But we, the sites, it, these monuments are enormous. Um, the most famous one, and I will not pronounce this one correctly at all, Buzladzla monument. It looks like a giant UFO. I know the one. Yes. It's so strange. And the graveyard in Sofia, where they had all of the, the Stalins and everything that were on public squares, they put them in this field together. So there's just this like field with all of these statues of bad communist leaders, which you can visit. It was a it was a very strange trip, but a very good trip. There we go. Strange old Lisbon. A big thanks to Anne for sharing her suggestions. They're all up on the website, strangeoldworld.com, along with a map so you can seek them out for yourself. Remember, you can find all of Anne's Forbes articles at forbes.com forward slash sites forward slash Anne Abel. You can also follow me on X and Instagram at Strange Old Joe for the latest pod news. Before I go, here's my strange Lisbon tip. The pickled head of Diogo Alves. Now, back in the day, Diogo was a very naughty boy. Between 1836 and 1840, he's said to have killed more than 70 people, usually by pushing them off an aqueduct. Hanged for his crimes in 1841, the head was then chopped off and stuck in a jar to preserve it for scientific research. 200 years on, Diogo's pickled head is remarkably well preserved, and you can go and see it in the University of Lisbon's Faculty of Medicine. You know, if that's your kind of thing. Okay, that'll do. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Strange Old World. The music is by William King, and this was a Junior Productions production.